Well, welcome to the Building Peace Initiative at youwantapeaceofmeonline.com. This is John Van Bladel, and this week's podcast is titled, What If and If Only. Now, I'll be inviting a bell of mindfulness from time to time here to slow me down a bit and to allow whatever I've said perhaps to sink in a bit. And we'll do a little practice right now. I'll invite the bell, and we'll breathe in and out three times together. In and out, that's three breaths, and then I will continue talking. All right, well, we often hear the phrase, what if, or if only, as if only someone would do something. It's often tinged with a sense of resignation or helplessness, like we're waiting for someone to tell us what to do. We wait for a leader, someone who will arrive to deliver us. Some of us are waiting for the Messiah, an elected official, a dictator, or some other charismatic figure who promises they will solve our problems. We wait for the next king to show up. Uh, Take a look at the divine right of kings one day, and that will give you an explanation of that phenomenon as if we do not have the knowledge or skill to make our own decisions. Far too often we cede our will to others who direct our fear, frustration, and anger towards a group that has been constructed as one we should fear, the repository of our frustrations. We find people to blame, sometimes called scapegoats, for the fear, anger, frustration, or whatever else we're feeling, instead of doing the work of discovering what's going on inside of us. These groups we blame are usually minorities and groups with little power, and we've seen this throughout history, Jews and various other religious groups, racial groups, women, the witch hunts in Europe were incredibly violent, the LGBTQIA plus community, maybe the poor, Republicans, Democrats, whoever's available to construct a false narrative about. As Marshall Rosenberg would say, we construct enemy images. This allows us to disable our empathy. And when we disable empathy, we're capable of doing all sorts of violent things to ourselves and other people. So instead of really delving into the causes of our unhappiness, we we repeat the same behaviors. I just repeated we a couple of times. (laughs) All the while, we hope that by blaming others, things will improve. It's the fault of this or that particular group. Um, If only this or that would happen, we'd feel better. We'd be doing better. Our habit of blame continues. Our language of domination and the cycles of violence continue with seemingly no end in sight. Now, these behaviors have been learned over over millennia. Therefore, the good news is, if they were learned, they can be unlearned. But it's a difficult task. We haven't been taught to do it. Uh, There's a lot of momentum Um, what I call a cultural and psychological undertow that keeps dragging us under. Now, these behaviors are systemic and institutionalized in our governments to the point where they seem to be a normal part of daily life. They're also part of our thinking patterns that I'll get into a bit later. Uh, So we have to slow down a bit, and this is where mindfulness can come in, step back, ask ourselves, is this really the way we should be living our lives or want to be living our lives? Is this really the way we want to be treating each other? Is this really the way we want to be treating ourselves? 
By whose authority? How did this all come to be? Now change requires that we see a problem with our behavior, with our institutions, and we commit to changing it. Yet we don't take the initiative when the solutions require us to act assertively. As I said earlier, we often become passive, we wait for someone else to step up. What if, and if only, someone would step in and do something? You know, you've heard the statement, keep calm and carry on. You've probably seen it on doors, boards, on the internet. Um, I suggest an alternative. Be alarmed and get actively engaged. So what is it that's going on? Why do we stand around and wait for others to act when we see suffering or injustice? Sorry, that sound was the cat deciding that he would show up in the entire apartment. He shows up here. I think he likes my podcast. Um, so what was I saying? Why do we stand around and wait for others to act when we see suffering or injustice? Uh, is it because we lack ethics or morals? I don't think that's normally the case. Um, there are some documented, as in researched by professionals who have an ethical code and do research, uh, reasons why we do not act. And one of these is called diffusion of responsibility. Now, diffusion of responsibility happens when we stand around and wait for someone else to take action. <clears throat> now, this is a little scary, but the more people present, the more likely it is that no one will do anything. We believe someone else is going to act. Now, hopefully this bit of information will help you to have some self-compassion rather than judging yourself harshly. We are the products of our environment, and understanding diffusion of responsibility can help change our perception and open the door to the reality that with awareness and practice we can change. Now, the two psychologists who did this wonderful little experiment, John Darley and Bib Latine, uh, set up an experiment where a distress call made it appear that a person nearby had suffered an injury. Now, when subjects heard the cry and thought they were the only ones present, 85% of them helped. But if subjects thought there was another person who heard the call too, only 62% helped. And if subjects thought that four people heard the cry for help, just 31% took action. Now, that's pretty telling. Now, what happens is diffusion of responsibility makes us feel less pressure to act uh, because they believe, whether it's correct or incorrect, um, that someone else will do it. And when we don't feel responsible for a situation, we don't feel guilty um, when we choose to do nothing to help. Uh, so this all comes off of an, a website that I'm going to put up for you on the, on the web page. It's Ethics Unwrapped at University of Texas. And what they say is that diffusion of responsibility keeps us from paying attention to our own conscience. It's not that we're better or moral. It's just a social phenomenon. Now, one of my favorite social psychology, basically, one of my favorite examples of this dynamic comes from a story titled, Whose Job Is It Anyway? Now, this is going to be a little tough to follow. Here's the story. This is a story about four people named everybody. Somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. 
somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. Yikes. <laughs> I just have so much trouble understanding that one. Um, now, again, this, this is a confusing story, but it gets to the point. If we stand around waiting, then one of, well, one of several things might happen. But a couple things that could happen is nothing will get done or the wrong person will fill the vacuum. And I'll delve into that deeper in upcoming podcasts where we will be dealing with the... It's supposed to be a drum roll. Narcissists and sociopathic types. Now, hear the Twilight Zone music where empathy and compassion do not exist. That would make a great Twilight Zone episode. So, what if we change the script a little bit? What if... When we determine someone is suffering, our action is we send our thoughts and prayers for peace to whoever needs them. And you hear that a lot. You know, there'll be a tragedy, there'll be another shooting, and people will send thoughts and prayers to them. My question is, how's that working out? Now, that's not to denigrate people or to say that we should not pray or meditate, um, as there are benefits to them, but is it enough? Uh, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., those of us who love peace must organize as effectively as the Warhawks. As they spread the propaganda of war, we must spread the propaganda of peace. Now, what I take away from this is we have to be actively engaged in the practice of peace. Now, we could also change peace into compassion. Those of us who love compassion must organize as effectively as the Warhawks. As they spread the propaganda of war, we may spread the propaganda of compassion, which is the foundation of peace. Now, this runs counter to the old, <clears throat> if you want peace, <coughs> excuse me, prepare for war, which is addressed nicely on the website, Agency for Peacebuilding, and um, I'll put that one up for you. Now, from that site, there's a well-known saying, Si vispasium parabellum, if you want peace, prepare for war. Now, politicians have used this uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, making the case for strong militaries, um, strong military spending, and sort of a questionable defense-oriented fallen policy. And as I said, this goes back to the old Roman historian Publius Flavius Vegetius Vernatus. That's quite a name, um, but it carries um, some importance. <laughs> My name is John. Um, it's kind of dull. I'm thinking of changing it to Jean. Perhaps that would make me more credible. By the way, if I'm <coughs> coughing a bit, it's the cat. I'm inhaling cat hair. It's time to brush him. Um, so basically, this is, in present days, this is called deterrence theory. Now, it's also called something called MAD. That's with one D. Uh, two Ds would be Mothers Against Drunk Driving. But MAD... Mutually assured destruction has actually escalated the arms race. Um, now, mutually assured destruction is basically a military theory that was developed to deter the use of nuclear weapons. Oh, God, my head's starting to hurt just thinking about this one. Now, the theory is based on the idea that nuclear weaponry is so devastating that nobody would ever use it because it would wipe out everybody. All right, right now I have a scene from the movie Zoolander where Will Ferrell says... <laughs> Has everybody been taking crazy pills? This is really 
hard to comprehend. Um, but to many, new, mutually assured destruction has helped prevent the Cold War from turning into a hot war. Um, now, this is just sort of a form of systemic violence that's been institutionalized into our institutions and schemas and our thought patterns. Uh, in essence, if we arm ourselves, it's going to prevent other people from harming us. This is a schema that we have developed. Uh, let's see. And the schema basically is a pattern of thinking and behavior that we use to interpret the world. So if we interpret the world as dangerous and the only way that we can uh, protect ourselves is being threatening to other people, it puts us in the situation that we're in now. And by the way, how many of have practiced mad in our relationships, mutually assured destruction, even our intimate ones in workplaces? I know there are times in my life um, that I thought, well, you bomb one of my cities, I'll bomb two of yours. Now, hmm, I wonder where I got that idea from. Authoritarian parents? My troubled neighborhood? Coaches? Maybe the whole entire culture I live in that taught me this. You know, as one of my coaches used to say, you have to make them suffer. Make them afraid of touching the ball because they know you will inflict pain on them. All right, I'm not going to get into the theory of athletics here. And the primal side of me still likes boxing. It's mano a mano. Two people enter, one leaves. It's me or you. Uh, you know, the best outcome in a boxing match is when you knock out your opponent. You give them a concussion, which is trauma to the brain. We just can't seem to get over the habit of clubbing each other over the head with sticks when we have a dispute, then standing over them feeling dominant. What was it Nietzsche wrote about it? The will to power. Well, I have another thought. How about the will to compassion? Wouldn't it be more gratifying to help enrich someone else's life and, in the process, enrich ours at the same time? Maybe that could be the competition. I could see it now. Let's stand in the ring with our arms raised together after defeating structural violence like poverty, discrimination, and hunger. How's that for a team sport? Can you see it? 80,000 fans packed into the Meadowlands singing, We are the champions. We have defeated poverty and structural violence. It's not only possible, but it's necessary. We have to evolve past violence. Our collective e existence depends on it. So, that is about it for today. What I'm going to ask you to do is adjust your schemas, make that choice, take that step beyond what if or if only, and commit to acting with an informed, assertive compassion to make the collective changes that are necessary. And I'll leave you with a little bit of Howard Zinn today, one of the books that they banned in some states. Small acts, when multiplied by millions of people, can transform the world. Be one of those people. Wishing you all some peace of mind this week and success in practicing an informed, assertive compassion.